Hi listeners, I know it's been a minute. For the last couple months, our producer Nate Birnbaum and I have been taking turns traveling with Generation on Fire. That's two groups of young Sunrise activists who've been marching hundreds of miles to demand climate action. One group marched from New Orleans to Houston, the other from Paradise, California to San Francisco. You'll be hearing much more about the Generation on Fire trek soon, and you can already see some videos from the treks on our social media pages. But in the meantime, we have a really exciting conversation episode with activist Kaniela Ng. Kaniela is the Climate Justice Campaign Director at People's Action. He's a native Hawaiian who was elected to the Hawaii State Legislature in his early 20s. He ran for Congress, and after he lost that race, he went to work for People's Action, which is a coalition of community organizing groups and is part of the Green New Deal Network. In this conversation, we talk about how he grew up in a working-class conservative background and what that taught him about what works and doesn't work in trying to talk with working people about climate change. We talk about how progressives need to build power outside the political system while also wielding power inside it, and what a Green New Deal could look like in Hawaii and across this country. Here's my conversation with Kaniela Ng. I wanted to start um, by just asking, like, how would you describe um, the community and the place that you grew up in? Well, when people think of Hawaii, they think of you know, tropical beaches, waterfalls, volcanoes like Kilauea, dramatic valleys like the Ko'olau. And we have all that. But where I grew up, it was the country, like bona fide country. It was mixed race, but it was very rooted. Like these communities, these families were there for generations. Most mothers stayed at home. Most fathers worked blue collar jobs. Success looked like becoming a firefighter or a police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we talked before, you told me about your dad. And I wanted to ask you about what his his politics were like and, um, you know, how even though your your politics are quite different than his, how his politics and work ultimately helped shape who you became. Yeah, sure. My uh, upbringing wasn't that different uh, from a lot of working class people of color. You know, my father was very conservative. Our household was a, a very conservative household where we supported uh, George Bush very fervently back in 2000. Um, We were raised to believe that life is all about working hard, um, doing what's best for yourself and your family, and just being kind to to, to people Um, at an individual level. uh, We, uh, my dad was was a born again Christian. He found uh, religion later on in life. um, And that kind of, drove all all the decisions uh, in our family. He had an interesting life journey. Uh, He he started off from the working poor and he got through high school and started in the service industry. So he was an ILWU uh, employee uh, at at a hotel and he was a a lead waiter. He kind of worked his way up and was doing all right. Uh, and then, but then he really wanted to kind of make the American dream happen. And he took a job as a financial service uh, term insurance salesperson. And uh, he worked really hard and he thought this was the way he can like have some financial freedom for, for our family. Um, but even though he was, he kind of organized the biggest team on in our state, uh, his network was 
poor brown people. So he wasn't making even half as much as a lot of the white colleagues that he admired and tried to be like. Um, and he was actually making more money as a waiter. So we struggled. There were months where um, we had next to no income and my mom had to take uh, some freelance art jobs. Um, we'd be at Kinko's at like 3am in the morning with her and you know they had to skip meals to make sure that, that we were fed. When did you um, first get involved in sort of activism and, and politics? So the, in Hawaii, we have a really unique history of colonization where once our monarchy was kind of ripped apart by colonial forces and missionaries, our, our kings and queens, our mo'i and ali'i, rather than uh, just keeping the wealth and resources in their families, they wholly just gave it to the people, the Hawaiian people. So we have uh, the Queen Liliuokalani Trust that works with, uh, you know, children who are uh, orphaned, or there's like the Luna Lilo Homes that works with the elderly. Uh, Bernice Pauhi Bishop gave her, uh, kind of transferred her wealth to create an educational system for, for native Hawaiian children. I was able to get into that school in eighth grade, a private school, um, without any cost. I had to learn how to be more disciplined and cut my hair and those sorts of things. I got a lot of detentions and suspensions at first, adjusting to it. It didn't help that I was still grieving for my father. Uh, but, you know, after tucking your shirt and kind of learning the colonial ways, uh, uh, I was more adapted to this uh, white supremacist world that we live in. Uh, so that, that was a big part of my story. But during my time in Kamehameha, there was a white student that tried to apply and there was a preference given to native Hawaiians. And he actually used the legal precedent that was set by the civil rights movement in order, he weaponized something that's meant to protect minorities against minorities and wanted to, and did a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court or almost to the Supreme Court that, that, um, would have completely dismantled not just Kamehameha, but any program that was meant to help uh, Native Hawaiians. Uh, so there was a uprising and our teachers actually let us go to the streets and, and protest. And it was the first time I'm like, damn, you can just do this. You can hold on signs and like speak against powerful like corporations and like lawyers and like, Man, and just the feeling you're around your people and you're rallying around the same cause with the same values, it it was just so invigorating. Like this is how, you know, corporate white people must feel all the time, anywhere they go. <laughs> but in that space, I was like, damn, I have power. Uh, so that just got me I just got the bug, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, wanna just quickly say what people's action is, um, and kind of what you're currently working on at People's Action. Oh, yeah. So People's Action, it's a network of, uh, I believe, 40 organizations now. Uh, I could be wrong. It's all changing. We're also adding new folks uh, across uh, across many states. We have a long history. We're most known for direct action uh, over the years. But we're, we started in 2017 as a merger of three different networks. So we're relatively new in that sense, and we're rapidly growing. Uh, we're multi-issue organizations. Everything is intersectional. Uh, we really value the movement at large. So we like the way we approach work is, you know, what's missing in the movement and how can we help fill that gap? And, 
we do a great job, I think, of uh, figuring out models of co-governance. Like now that we're actually electing people that are like bold, progressive, on the left, good on climate, like how do we work with them in this system that's not always conducive uh, to like organizers and activism in a way that both sides feel um, respective and held? How do you think that organizers, that activists should balance sort of um, needing to like have power within the Democratic Party and be inside the room with like having outside power and sort of putting constant pressure on legislators from outside? Well, I think the first thing is to never mistake access for power, uh, especially in the climate movement. I think this has been uh, something that's plagued us for a, a long time. Um, the Sierra Club, they've been doing actually a lot of great reforms lately, um, but they have a policy locally here in Hawaii where they always support incumbents. <laughs> like, There's nothing an incumbent can really do um, that will make them support uh, a challenger, really, uh, because of you know the polls and, and things like that. So why should they really take you seriously? Like They might take meetings with you because they want support from your base and you know, want to say they have environmental, like a greenwash stamp on their legislation, but do you really have power? Um, so yeah, understand the difference between access and power and not sacrifice power for access. Um, the inside game is really about wielding power. Uh, it's not at all about building power. The only way to build power is, uh, is on the ground in your communities. Uh, making, having those, you know, thousands of conversations with your neighbors. Um, but that's also not enough. Like you also got to wield it and let you have it. Uh, so that's where the inside game comes in. Um, I've learned that if we do days of action and like really cool things like that, where we do like 30 in-person actions across the nation in our network, or sometimes more all in one day, like it's exciting and it's fun and it like fuels people up. It helps build a base in the community, but it's not always strategic. Sometimes it's like, um, you know, just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, but we want to make sure if we're asking our, you know, these busy working class people on the ground to, to take an action that is worth it. So having an inside strategy and doing the work on the Hill and figuring out who the appropriate targets are for, for each action um, actually informs our outside strategy in a really powerful way. Uh, so, so that's kind of been the tact that I've been taking. Uh, you know, you request your meetings on the inside, uh, reward people, like walk them a thousand roses if they're championing your bill. Um, if uh, punish people who oppose it and for all the, everyone in between, they can see the scorcher you leave behind in your wake. Yeah. I mean, that kind of takes me to my follow-up, which is like, what, um, what did your background and your upbringing, like the fact that you were pretty conservative, um, teach you about like how to communicate um, left-wing messages to a, a more conservative audience? And like, I know a lot of the work that People's Action does is based on like deep canvassing and, and trying to actually, um, you know, talk to people who don't necessarily align with us on a lot of things. Like what is, um, what has your own background um, taught you and, and helped you bring to that work? Yeah, that, you know, people don't identify first and foremost as partisans or where they lie on a political spectrum. Uh, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Kanye, I'm a lefty. Like people don't identify like that. Um, and they form relationships based on how people make them feel. 
uh, how they relate to your values and whether or not they trust you. Like you look at people who vote like during my first race, it was a Republican district. Um, they had they had no reason to vote for me, really, considering my platform. But, you know, when I knocked on the door three times and just asked them about their families and, and things they would like to see in the community, I gained their trust. And that's how the vast majority of people make their decisions um, and across all aspects of their life, not just your political lives. Um, so I think growing up conservative taught me that, that just because someone voted for Trump, they're not necessarily a bad person. Uh, given most bad people do vote for Trump, but not all Trump voters are bad people. They're just exposed to what they're exposed to. So when people on our side, uh, specifically the Democratic Party, when the Democratic Party doesn't show up in a lot of these working class areas for decades now, um, they're going to go with what they know. And we shouldn't be writing anybody off. Um, that said, the way the way that we're often taught to communicate to like right-wing voters or, or presumably right-wing voters is uh, to kind of speak their language, uh, talk about freedom and um, markets and how uh, policies could benefit folks financially. And we should be careful not to fall into those traps. When you speak to the moral basis of any issue, and just use that moral language. Like we, you know, people, uh, no one should work full-time and uh, be homeless or we should have no homeless people because, you know, in a world with billionaires, uh, when you when you make the moral argument, uh, it's, it tends to be uh, the most impactful because uh, then they got to, you know, justify why uh, certain folks don't deserve the good life. Um, and th- th- that's something that, uh, is a skill that I think more organizers need to develop is to um, stop trying to think about speaking the way that your audience wants to hear, uh, but rather just what you believe and, and the moral crux of, the, of your argument and uh, make them respond to that. I wanted to have you talk a little bit about um, how the climate crisis um, and the fossil fuel economy is impacting Hawaii and like how this is reflective of the fallout from the ongoing fallout of colonialism. Yeah. So like where I first lived as a kid was in Kihei, the district I represented. And that town will, would literally be underwater in 30 years if we don't. Like by the time I'm what, 50, 60 and my kids are like coming of age, uh, it'll be done against us. Uh, so it's, it's not like we're considered the global South. Our economy is completely reliant on tourism, real estate, and the military, all three of which paradoxically rely on the preservation of the natural beauty of our islands, but also the destruction of it. Uh, and these three industries historically have been the driving force for colonization and ecological devastation across um, the world. And it's like magnified here in Hawaii. So like, it's just the Green New Deal is so vital that we just completely transform the way that we structure our economy and economy as, you know, the way we manage society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
What do you imagine Hawaii under a Green New Deal could look like? If you haven't been to Hawaii, it's beautiful, but there's so much work to do. Uh, there's a rail that's we've been trying to build for 30 years now that doesn't have the funding. We're about to raise taxes on working people in order to fund it. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. That funding should be coming, should be guaranteed by the federal government. You know, in terms of planting trees, planting food, there's just infinite amount of work that needs to be done and the jobs just aren't there. Uh, the, the private sector doesn't do it. The market won't provide the job. So uh, just this idea that we can walk into an employment office uh, and I can just sign up and get on a project with like, you know, my white sister, sisters and brothers are poor, like, immigrants and everyone like you want to talk about unity. Like that's how we create unity, building shit together. Uh, so that's that's what excites me. There's just so much endless potential of things to do here. Um uh, but right now, we're just outsourcing work to uh, just random mainland corporations who ship gig, gig workers over um, and mistreat them um, just to build Orange County style strip malls and just erase everything special about our islands. Yeah, I think that's one of the key points of the Green New Deal that I think isn't talked about enough is like there are so many jobs to be done and there are so many people to do them. Why don't we just put people to work building the sustainable economy that we need? I wanted to ask you like how you're how you're feeling about the the possibilities of of getting some level of, of good climate action like in the next few months um, with this infrastructure bill and how you're you're organizing and, and thinking about it and, and what you think uh, folks can do to, to contribute to making sure that the Democrats actually get something done here. I mean, since the American jobs plan came out, President Biden has been making a making a point to open up these bipartisan negotiations, even though we knew from the jump, Mitch McConnell said that he's going to block the Democrats agenda literally every step of the way. And it just feels like a charade. So Biden can check off the box to say that he's being bipartisan. But I think folks are just hoping, progressives were hoping at some point he'd drop it uh, because every day wasted is another day that our communities are suffering from pollution and job loss and uh, racism. Uh, and like we have a chance now to to heal those harms and you know transform our economy and we can't waste any more time. It's starting to feel like, you know, this is purposeful, like Biden and Republicans have been purposely kind of moving the center of the discussion. So now the American jobs plan feels like the progressive plan and like progressives like us will be okay with it, but we need to hold strong and say, no, like leading researchers are telling us that we need $1 trillion a year for the next decade in order to um, ensure a livable planet and eliminate environmental injustice. We shouldn't settle for anything less, definitely as organizers. And if negotiations are going to happen, uh, that needs to be the starting point. We can't start from the already compromised uh, American jobs plan. Uh, so, you know, I think I am hopeful because there's a chorus of Democrats now singing uh, no climate, no bill. And the, the question now is that we need to answer before moderates do is what that means. Uh, so uh, what we've been saying at People's Action uh, with our 40 organizations across the nation uh, representing millions of people uh, and, you know, folks at Sunrise have been saying similar things is uh, we need at least one trillion dollars for public renewables and 500 billion for transportation and uh, a fully funded uh, civilian climate corps 
And I wanted to ask you about building that economy that communities want to see. What does indigenous um, leadership in our response to the climate crisis look like? And like, how can we repair both the damages of the fossil fuel economy and this um, colonial white supremacist dominance at the same time? In Hawaii, um, like our ancestors are the kalo plant, like that's what started uh, life as we know it. So we have this special, not just uh, you know, spiritual uh, like reliance on subsistence with their land, but an ancestral connection uh, with it as well. So when uh, missionaries and colonizers came and just started claiming it as, you know, this is our land, it was just, it was so foreign and, and hard to understand. And like, we're at a point now where we don't have local housing markets here in Hawaii. There's maybe one island that still has that your, the value of your house is still based on the incomes of the people who live around it. Uh, it's an international market uh, and it's it's impossible. We can't compete because the demand to live here is insatiable. Uh, we can't just build our way out of it, frankly. Uh, so the real estate market is doomed to fail if, if it's not failing already. The median home on, on my home island is $1.1 million, uh, but our wages have been stagnant for the last uh, couple decades now. So I think getting back to that idea that housing should be to house folks, <laughs> it shouldn't just be a speculative market. And, you know, I think like since Sunrise broke out in the scene and the Green Deal Network and what uh, environmental justice organizers have been talking about for decades now is that like it has to be intersectional. And it's not just because we wanna respect folks and honor people's rights and, and dignity, that's, that's obviously at the core of it. Um, but also the colonial history of Hawaii and a lot of these islands uh, let's let's take trans rights, for example, or, or gender. Um, they saw two-spirited people, we call them mahu here in, in, in the Native Hawaiian community, and women with um, unseen amounts of power uh, as compared to Western societies. And the men, the colonizers were threatened by it. And when they pushed Christianity, it wasn't just because of religious intolerance. Um, it was also because they wanted to undermine that power. Um, they, they noticed if they said, no, women can't be there, uh, trans folks can't be doing this, then it actually uh, subverts our whole structure of power and the way we run society. Um, so they weaponized that in order to kind of have their way with colonization. So by restoring those rights to women, to trans folks, to LGBTQ folks, uh, immigrants, we're also just we're also reverting back to um, in our indigenous culture, but it's not just the spiritual realm, which sometimes um, indigenous rights gets uh, pigeonholed into. Um, it's it's about real power and economic and everything else. Looking forward to the future, um, what makes you most hopeful and what makes you most fearful? I'll start with most fearful. I, I went over it a little bit. <laughs> it's just like, shit's real. You know, I, I read that book, uh, Oh, who wrote it? It was a ministry for the future. Ken Sally Robinson. I was reading that. I always like shook to my core because it felt very real. It was like a black mirror sort of thing where, um, you know, it starts off with a heat wave in India and like millions of people die on an instant. And we are very close to the, to that point. Uh, and in Hawaii, we're just extra vulnerable. What makes me hopeful is how fast things are changing. And it's because of like the youth rising, like the sunrise movement, the youth climate strikes, and kind of meeting what uh, our ancestors have been saying for generations and heeding the call. So it's been, uh, 
extremely spiriting to for me to to see that happen because uh, you know in Hawaii when I was in the legislature we passed the first hundred percent renewable energy goal statewide back in 2015 um, and I was excited about it but I also knew that it didn't include a lot of the environmental justice protections equity standards that we relied on and people just didn't want to talk about it like the carbon tax was seen as the big silver bullet for for uh, the climate movement and uh, I when I was running uh, for Congress in 2018 it was like one trillion dollar investment that's what a brand new congress was talking about and it, we were considered like radical you have biden who was like a self-proclaimed centrist talking about two trillion now straight up expressly saying we need structural changes we're not trying to get back to um you know where we were and that's really i don't know that gives me a lot of hope because i know it wasn't these politicians who did it like they're good politicians you know they want to be in the middle of where society is and they move their ass there as fast as possible who moved society to create that new middle was uh were these organizers and activists and it's only growing like this movement's getting bigger and bigger and what i want our role to be in people's action is yeah the deep canvassing doing what i did at the doors moving people um who we kind of written off as unmovable, um, and but also continuing to mobilize people who would already be inclined to act and just need to level up, you know. And, and like maybe they've been calling their member of a Congress, or maybe they've just been um, like voting, and they got to take the next level of their political life and and like call the member of Congress. Maybe you got to level them up to take an action on the streets. And I just want to encourage people, like maybe run for office. Uh, you know, if that if that's not your thing, then uh, maybe organize an event, maybe make some calls. It's not all as glamorous. Sometimes the work to be done is like boring and you're just calling. But like once it's done, man, it is so fulfilling because you realize like you're doing your part. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to hear more from Kaniella, you can follow them on Twitter at Kaniella Ng. You can follow Generation Green New Deal on social media at Generation GND. And please support the show by subscribing to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Generation GND. Generation Green New Deal is produced by Takuna Lam Productions and hosted by me, Sam Eilertson. Nate Birnbaum created the show with me and produced this episode, which was edited by Noah Foley-Biding. Thanks for listening. <laughs>